Good morning and welcome. We're here this morning to hear argument in the case of Hoosier Contractors, LLC, who are the appellants and cross-appellees and counterclaim defendants versus Sean Gardner, appellee, cross-appellant, counterclaimant. It's a civil transfer case. Transfer has been granted. Counsel for the appellant, Hoosier Contractors, will argue first. Representing the appellants at counsel table today, we have William Riley. Good morning, Mr. Riley. Russell Kate. Good morning, Mr. Kate. And Sandeep Singh. Good morning, Mr. Singh. Representing the appellees at counsel ta table, we have Paul Jefferson. Good morning, Mr. Jefferson. And representing the state of Indiana, we have the Solicitor General, Tom Fisher. Good morning. And the two of you will be arguing, correct? We also have counsel table, Brad Bukite. Good morning, Mr. Bukite, and welcome. Counsel, as we have been conducting oral arguments, you'll each have approximately about two minutes before we may start at asking questions. Counsel, are you ready to proceed? All right, Mr. Riley. May it please the court. Good morning, Your Honors. This is a situation where the court is called upon to construct two statutes or to provide guidance on two statutes, Indiana Code 24-5-0.5-4A and 4B. This matter arose when Sean Gardner filed suit, no, actually, suit was filed originally by Hoosier Contractors against Sean Gardner. A counterclaim and eventually a class action was certified stating that Hoosier Contractors had violated HICA, the Home Improvement Contracts Act. With that, the violation is also of the Deceptive Consumer Sales Act. The Deceptive Consumer Sales Act provides that a perverse person relying on an uncured or incurable deceptive act may bring an action for the damages actually suffered as a consumer as a result of the deceptive act or $500, whichever is greater. Here, Sean Gardner and the class assert merely by signing the agreement that constitutes a deceptive consumer act. They have no injury, but nevertheless, that yields statutory damages in their opinion of $500. The trial court and the Court of Appeals agreed that Indiana Code 24-5-0.5-4A is a statutory damages statute. I argue to this court that it is, in fact, a minimum damages statute. And the reason for that is, in order to have a recovery, there must either be actual damages suffered greater than $500 or actual damages suffered less than $500, which produces a result of $500. Is your interpretation of that provision based on the text, or is it based on the purpose, the motivation of the legislature to have enacted this thing? Justice Slaughter, it is based on the text itself. I don't think we can know what the purpose is of the legislature. We have no legislative history in Indiana. Therefore, the Court of Appeals took a different view of what this statute means. Why do you think they got it wrong? I think what they got wrong was the idea that this was to be liberally construed. And in liberally construing it, what they did was they imparted meaning to it. And I would point to this court in reading the law by Justice Scalia when he deals on page 245 of liberal construction. All that actually means is the court is to give a fair interpretation. A fair inter- 
walk, walk us through, if you would, please, your, your, um, what you describe as your grammatical argument, um, parsing the text. Your Honor, what I have argued here is that there are at least damages actually suffered. Actually means there are damages in reality that are suffered. And whichever greater, which is the final clause, is weighed against the damages actually suffered at $500. If no damages are suffered, there is nothing to measure. Nothing is not something. And therefore, $500 doesn't come into play. With contracts above $150 under the code, you have to have a written contract. So we're looking at, for written contracts, a base amount of $150. So far, you're 0 for 4 in judges who have considered that argument, if my count is correct. Um, if we disagree with you on the meaning of what that statutory provision is, um, do you lose on the standing argument? You also raised um, a standing argument under the Constitution. What, what is that argument? Will you explain that to us? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last part of what you said, Justice. You explain your, your alternative argument for lack of standing. Well, I mean, essentially, the most the argument that I believe is the most appropriate is damages are required in order to have standing. And therefore, with no damages, you cannot have a case because the Indiana Code allows the Attorney General to, and civil penalties can be imposed in an action. This doesn't use the term civil penalties for the $500. So civil penalties wouldn't require damages. The injury isn't the way the statute's written, and in looking at other statutes, um, I think particularly New Hampshire and their Supreme Court, how they dealt with the same issue, and, and I believe Illinois might have been the other state. The injury is the reliance under a straight reading of the statute. I would call that, uh, Chief Justice, like Chow, that is the wrongful act is what would occur allegedly with regard to the language of the contract. So. Florida's statute is worded different. You, know, you would win under the direct wording of the statute in, but the, it's, the, I don't read the statute the way you read it. I read that they, they, they allege the reliance. I went and looked at the amended um, complaint, or the amended, uh, amended counterclaim. They, have, they alleged reliance. Um, not that there's lots of issues in this case um, with regard to how it, it came up to us or even before the trial court. But you don't have to win to show that you've got a merits um, to be able to ha get that threshold issue of standing. And why is the reliance not enough to get you into the $500 under a direct reading of the statute? And frankly, when I look at other statutes dealing with consumer protection or other federal statutes, they've interpreted the same way um, that, that I'm just saying right now, that this is enough for standing. Chief Justice, I would say that by interpreting it that way, it causes an inconsistency in the code itself. I would direct the court's attention to 24-5-0.5-5A, which is notice that it must be given for an uncured deceptive act. In the notice, the plaintiff is required to state what the actual damages are. And so inherent in this for an uncured action, there is a requirement of the plaintiff to state what their actual damages are. In this case, they would have to state, if it was an uncured action, a deceptive action, they'd have to say, we don't have any damages. Counsel, I had a question that was somewhat related to uh, what the Chief was asking about. You know, you focus on the language in the statute that's around the word damages, but 
I focused a little bit earlier in the statute that where the statute begins, a person relying upon an uncured or incurable deceptive act. Does the word relying there imply detrimental reliance or is it any kind of reliance? I think it's any type of reliance, Your Honor. I don't it doesn't have to be detrimental? I don't think it. I think. Oh, it would be detrimental if it, it caused damages, right? Yeah. If it causes damages, it's detrimental reliance. So then, what is your understanding uh, of the other side's claim as to what the reliance was in this case, if any? There, as I understand their claim, mere fact that they signed the contract, even if they had their roofs replaced, was their damage. They relied on a contract they said was not HICA compliant. So an individual could, in fact, have signed this contract, had their roof replaced, be happy with their roof being replaced, but nevertheless, they would have a cause of action for statutory damages under the construction of the prior courts in this matter. And to me, that, doesn't, that further doesn't make logical sense when if Hoosier contractors had under 24-5-0.5-2A6 provided an offer to cure, the calculation must be to remedy a loss. What about the, they're being sued now by who, by your client? So they're not being damaged in that capacity? They relied on the contract, or they signed the contract, and they later became sued, or they, they later were sued. That would not be a HICA violation. That would merely be a contract action for the contract they signed. So I would see that unrelated. Counsel, I want to get into the uh, attorney fees issue while you're still at the, at the podium. Um, uh, in the dueling briefs, we have sort of the, the uh, unusual circumstance of the Solicitor General arguing a purposivist uh, interpretation of statute, something we don't see often. Um, and I would also observe, right, over, over time, in certain legal quarters, the, you know, the, the English rule has been a, a, a coveted outcome. But, I mean, are we to take that um, from the General Assembly's uh, passage of the Home Improvement Contractors Act that they very quietly and subtly wanted to change the rule to loser pays? Or, or, or does the Solicitor General have the better of the argument here? Uh, Your Honor, I do not believe the Solicitor General has the better of the argument. I think under the actual language of the statute, there is an equality. The prevailing party wins. And under Black's Law Dictionary, the 11th edition, there is nothing stated in there that says it should be the plaintiff only that recovers fees. It's prevailing party. So I don't see even under such as the legal, uh, the, the Encyclopedia Black's Law Dictionary, or actually in the Buchan, Buckhannon case by Justice Scalia that it's limited to the plaintiff. So I think anything is trailing outside of the language of the statute and further it's an attempt to impart a meaning to the statute which the statute doesn't bear. But so you win on your, on your argument under, under a plain meaning uh, interpretation of that statute? Uh, you think the plain meaning is? Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. For both, I think the plain meaning is as I But there's I another step here, and that is you're equating a class, you know, a passive class member with a prevailing party. I could find no case in the United States, and living at the federal, where a passive class member um, is responsible, is even considered a party. I would, I would agree, Your Honor, that there is not. So we would have to be, we would be making new law in Indiana for the first time ever in any court finding that a passive class member um, 
is considered a, a party with regard to the payment of attorney's fees. I want to draw a distinction, Your Honor, between class actions that proceed outside of statutory law and this one which is proceeding under statutory law. So it is not a blanket situation that class members would But we have to define right now, because the legislature doesn't define prevailing party, correct? That's correct. Okay. So when I looked at analogous statutes, both federally and other states, they've clearly said that class, uh, class, um, passive class members were not considering. They're not driving the litigation. You could have some bad actor plaintiff um, that's calling all the shots. There's somebody didn't opt out of a class action. I'm not finding anywhere that they're responsible for attorney's fees or even definitionally that they are considered a party. Well, for the first argument would be trial rule four, where they are subject to the authority of the court. They would benefit from attorney's fees on the other side if they were awarded against the defendant in a class action. Right, and that's clear, and that's set out because they're responsible for their fair share of costs and fees. But with regard to the flip side, we would be making, you agree, we would be, we would be making new law. With regard to this statute and the Deceptive Consumer Sales Act, you would be. Now, prevailing party, is not going to show up in a lot of normal class action cases that are going to be litigated here or are actually litigated in federal court. Most class actions don't have an attorney fee component, at least for the common ones that I have myself litigated. So I'm looking at whether the court, trial court abused its discretion in requiring that notice. So when I look at the wording under our trial rule 23C, and when I look at the statute, where does the trial court get its authority to require that? I, why is that not an abuse of discretion? Where do you get your authority to say, to add that provision in the notice? Well, I think under due process, and the court, trial court's reading and the Court of Appeals is that the statute allows for that. And then due process considerations that the putative, well, it's no longer putative, the class members should be notified of the requirement that they may be required, may If be we required. don't find the class action members, not the representative party, not the party or the class representatives, are not parties to an action, then you would lose with regard to the trial court abusing its discretion and requiring that notice to all potential class members. That is true, Your Honor. However, that would run against the idea of them being subject to the authority of the court and bound by the judgments of the court. If I, I don't see how we could have it both ways. And further, one other thing I might say, Your Honor, is that the situation is the law as the legislature has drafted it. I mean, it may be that the people could argue that it is not prudent, but nevertheless, the legislature has in this situation drafted and passed, and it's been signed into law, law that says this. It, it may not be as we would want it to be, but it is as it is. And to define it in any other way is to define the words against what they actually say, which I believe that the statute is the best expositor of itself, for good or ill. Is the, your basis for seeking um, decertification based solely on the lack of standing? Below, we argued a failure to prosecute, but that's not before this court. You're not arguing, you're not objecting to what appears to be a, a fail-safe class definition? That's not before, I, that's actually, not before us? I did argue that to the Court of Appeals and, and seeking transfer when it was first certified, but that was denied. So that's not before the court yet. The decertification is not still an issue, live issue before the court? 
Not this court. It, is, it was the Court of Appeals declined to accept it when I tried to bring that up, and so that's still pending the resolution I, I, of this I, matter. And I don't mean to cut you off, Mr. Rowley. I know you're about out of time, but I wonder on rebuttal if you um, — but it seems to me that that's really the, the thing that makes this such a difficult case. Uh, if, if we disagree with you on standing, uh, if we disagree with you um, uh, on the issues that are before us, it seems that the issue — this statute, to me, seems to contemplate a sole plaintiff uh, can have a powerful defense to an unscrupulous contractor. Uh, your client is not in the position of a, a typical client with all of these outstanding claims, and, and nor is the, the, the homeowner with uh, <laughs> seeking to certify the class. I'm concerned with doing injury to the law. Uh, if we kick this out on standing, what does that do to the normal homeowner's ability to prosecute this? And if you want to take a minute, that's, that's fine, I suppose, if the Chief will indulge me. Thank you, Justice Goff. I think if you determine that there's no standing here, that the, the statute is still well in place for anyone who has entered into a situation with a contractor and they have somehow been wronged and they have actual damages, there is, in fact, a remedy there, a remedy that, if they are successful and the court decides, could award them also their attorney's fees. So I don't think that a determination here on standing guts the statute in any way. What I do think is it preserves some equality, uh, and I think the equality is based on the fact that both sides can get attorney's fees. So as Justice Scalia and his concurrence in Buckhannon said, this is not just a maximal attempt to empower private attorney generals to act. Thank you, Mr. Riley. We'll hear from you again on rebuttal. Mr. Jefferson. Madam Chief Justice, and may it please the court, uh, I'm pleased to be here today on behalf of Dr. Sean Gardner and the class that he represents. I'll limit my argument to 14 minutes and allow Mr. Fisher to speak on behalf of the Indiana Attorney General. The Indiana General Assembly has provided the framework under which its Deceptive Consumer Sales Act and Home Improvement Contractor Act statutes are to be construed. And that statutory framework is critical to understanding the statutory construction issues before the court today. Specifically, the Indiana General Assembly directed that the statute should be, quote, liberally construed and applied, close quote, in order to promote the policies of protecting consumers from deceptive sales acts and to encourage fair consumer sales practices. Notably, in all of the statutory construction arguments in their brief, Hoosier Contractor never cites this statute, Indiana Code 24 5.5-1. Here, it's not simply legislative history in terms of committee meetings. It's legislative statute asking and, and declaring how the, how the legislature wants the statutes to be construed. Hoosier contractors proposed statutory construction interpretation, both in terms of standing and in terms of the fee issues, contradict these policies. They would leave consumers with far less protection, in many cases unprotected, and would incentivize the very conduct our legislature is trying to curtail. To protect these policies, Dr. Gardner and the class request that the court determine that the deceptive act is the injury and agree with the trial court and the Court of Appeals that Dr. Gardner and the class have standing. So if I may, just on that point, you say the deceptive act is the injury. Is that the only injury you're alleging, or are you also alleging something else? There's several so what is that other? What else? What is that else? Well, 
and the biggest issue, is, as Chief Justice Rush mentioned, is that we're being sued under a contract that is voidable under the Act itself. So the injury to Dr. Gardner, if he's not only able to assert his HICA claim, is that he can't void the statute that we argue is against the law in Indiana. So he, he definitely has that injury. But I also think, in terms of the standing issue, the reliance argument that Justice Moulter mentioned, there is reliance. And if you look at the Deceptive Practices Act, acts that are outlined in the statute, it, it can't mean some sort of financial injury. It hasn't meant some sort of financial injury. If we're dealing with something like the auto dialer statute in Indiana, which is a Deceptive Practices Act, where your phone rings, but the, the injury is who made the call and, and what, what was the purpose, we can't look to something like, um, you know, whether that caused financial harm to deal with standing. And, and let's not stray from the name. It's a deceptive practice. The legislature has decided we want to protect Indiana consumers but, from But it's these not issues. a strict liability statute. There's a, there, or, or, or is it in your view? The, the fact it's, that there was a deceptive act, even if you weren't harmed by the deceptive act, that's, that's good enough? In terms of strict liability, I think if, if we meet the burden of proof to show that there, there was a deceptive act, I don't know that that makes it necessarily strict liability, but I think that would be the burden that the well, Let's go back to the injury. Your, your amended counterclaim alleges that you were indeed, you, you relied to your detriment, your clients relied to their detriment sure. on, on, on the, uh, the, the deceptive act. But then in the briefing, you seem to disclaim that there was any injury at all and that the, 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 the violation is itself the injury. So, so which is it? it? It's both. And the violation itself is the injury, as, as the statutory construction argument goes. But as it relates to Mr. Gardner's situation, Hoosier Contractors was trying to install a roof that they wanted to charge between fifty-five and $65,000, and he was able to put it on for eighteen. So if they tried to deceive you, but you weren't deceived, and you suffered no damages, you're still entitled to $500? Well, I believe the reliance happens at the time you sign the, the, the violative contract. And at that point in time, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have a lawsuit if we weren't deceived. There wouldn't be a contract to enforce. If, if for example, the, the, the statutory language regarding the ability to cancel the contract were in there, or other things. So, Justice Mass, I do think that there's some specific situations to Dr. Gardner's case, but the deceptive act is the injury, and that's what the legislature has outlined in the statute. Also, had suggested that um, being brought into the litigation was also an injury. How so? How is it that the statute, by, how is it that by being sued, you were somehow injured under the statute? If someone tries to enforce an illegal contract in court, we should be allowed to assert the defense that it is, in fact, illegal. That defense is hit. And, and you've done that. Right. But, but that, that is the injury. I mean, if, if it, it would make... So, so it's, not the, it's not the violation itself, but it's the, the litigation to enforce an agreement that's... that's well, the it is the violation the itself. The violation... It is the violation itself. If the contract was compliant with the statute, we wouldn't have that defense. Counsel, I want to make sure I have an exhaustive list of, of each injury you're alleging. So I think I've heard two. You've said one is just any deceptive act just on its face under the statute is an injury. The second one is that you've been uh, required to defend a lawsuit. Is there any other way in which your client was injured other than those two? Um, I mean, there, there's a laundry list. I'm not sure they're all on the record, Your Honor, but the ones that are in the record, I, I think part of the injury is the price he had to, he was being 
coerced to pay for the roof. Well, part of what's confused me about this, uh, and maybe I'm misunderstanding the record, as I understood the, the way the other side at least tells the story, um, through Hoosier Contractors' efforts, uh, your client was able to secure $60,000 roughly from the insurance company, was then able to have the work done for something like $18,000, and then gets to pocket the $40,000 difference. Is that, is that wrong? Or? It is wrong. He didn't pocket the difference. There's nothing in the record that says he's pocketed the difference, and the, the insurance company has the money. So. You have, you, he signed the contract. So would you agree that if you're looking at potential class members or parties, let's say they were, he was just presented with a contract and didn't sign it, would he still have standing? I, I think you would have to actually execute the agreement, but I would note that um, at the time he signed this contract, he didn't know it was a contract. In fact, Hoosier, Hoosier and it's in the record, counsels their salespeople to never ever, in, in caps, refer to this as a contract. He thought that he was signing a document that allowed them to inspect the roof and never saw the backside of the agreement. So you would agree with me then, if you look at these potential class, and, and I don't know who all is going to be in this class. Um, if he, if he hadn't relied on the statements, that reliance that the statute talks about, and signed the contract, that, that those actions were his injury to his detriment. I, I think the detriment, I think, is the deceptive act itself. That, that's how we would construe the deceptive this act can be out there, right? You okay. Can, there's this contract out there that's got four deceptive acts, but if you don't sign it or rely on it, you're not a, you, the whole the 6.7 million people in the state of Indiana are not parties to Hoosier's contract here. If someone takes an action and and believes that someone is complying with the law, who's asking them to take that action, I believe there is reliance. Just as in the case of, you know, the, the auto dialer statute. It's reliance when someone hears their phone rings and assumes that the person on the other end is calling because they followed the law. Here, when someone's presented a contract that is supposed to comply with a certain statute and they're asked to sign it, it shouldn't be the consumer's obligation to have to go research all of Indiana law to determine whether or not that contract, that they just want somebody to go and see if they have roof damage, complies. That, that the reliance I think that the legislature is talking about is, if you act within the scope of what we're talking about under the statutory scheme, consumers are going to rely on the fact that you're following our laws. And if you don't, here are the consequences. Is this akin to a penalty, even though it doesn't call itself a penalty? Is the fact that you, you don't have to show that you are injured by these monetary damages? Well, interestingly, the last uh, statute in, the, in, in HICA does call it a penalty. And I think it could essentially be a penalty. Whether you call it statutory damages, minimum damages, or a penalty, I think we get to the same place. But HICA certainly mentions penalties. Now, it doesn't enumerate what they are, so there could be potentially other penalties, but um, HICA, HICA refers to them that way. In addition, um, on, uh, as Does your client agree that the unnamed or the, the, the class representatives are not on the um, line for potential attorney's fees? Because you don't really argue that in your brief. Yes, we, we, we would argue that um, class members are not parties under the definition of the statute. So it would be the, any attorney's fees would be against the class representative, which would be your client. Right, and I, I think it, it's that language was inserted into the class notice clearly to scare the class members into opting out of the class. And, and that's inappropriate in large part because it's, it's an incorrect statement of the law and also we believe an incorrect uh, construction of the statute. 
So, as it relates to the class action notice itself, uh, the only interpretation of the attorney's fees section consistent with the articulated intent provisions under the Deceptive Consumer Practices Act is one that precludes the addition of the fee language in the statute, in the class notice. The fee language is limited, the language in the statute should be limited to parties if it's in, included at all, but we would also advance that, that what the legislature was trying to do, and consistent with the policies of the Deceptive Consumer Sales Act, is to not usurp the court's discretion in, in rare cases where fees may be necessary if there's frivolous that litigation. Right before us? We don't have a prevailing party before us today. Wouldn't we just be giving an advisory opinion on that? I, I don't. I, I disagree. A statutory construction issue is ripe. It's fully briefed. In terms of what the judge should be able to do as it relates to the class, I do think that the Court of Appeals opinion leaves um, some, some large gray areas, and I think that... But for us to give an opinion on what fees, whether it's the fees, all their attorney's fees, or the fees may, or it's limited by the American rule and the statutory fees based on frivolous or bad faith, why is, that, why is that squared up today? The, the issue in terms of the policy section of the statute and the fee section of the statute and how those two should be construed together to further the purposes of the statute are before the court. And our argument is that the only way that those two statutory provisions square with one another is, as um, um, other courts have construed, is if the fee provision, even though it says prevailing party, it relates to a party that uh, either brings the Deceptive Act claim or, in rare instances, if, if that party um, you know, were to engage in some sort of frivolous litigation, which isn't at issue here, or something the legislature just didn't want to take the discretion away from the court to be able to do so. so it doesn't say prevailing plaintiff. It's just a, it says prevailing party. And, and potentially, Your Honor, of course, we're, you know, uh, as it relates to that issue, if you look at this case, we're not, we're not a plaintiff, we're a defendant. So maybe the legislature was just trying to grab, grab flexibility in terms of that word so that we aren't before the court saying, well, they're not technically a plaintiff, they're a defendant, and, and have the court look at the policies that are enumerated above. It, it would certainly be an odd day if someone can commit a deceptive practice in Indiana and then gets the incentive to litigate it because they might recover fees at the end. And guidance on that issue, I do think, um, is ripe, and, and obviously we would ask the court to be able Let to Let me ask you it. one before you sit down. Um, you indicated in response to Justice Moulter's question that your client never pocketed the difference in the insurance proceeds and the insurance company still has it. The transcript of the uh, trial court proceedings, there's at least a, a statement otherwise the other side. So is that a live issue? And if not, where did that come from? I don't know. The other side has assumed that, but they never bothered to ask the question in the deposition that they designated for summary judgment. Had they asked the question, they would have known that Mr. Dr. Gardner no longer has those funds. In response to another question, uh, he'd ask you to list injuries. Um, the, the fact that you've been hauled into court seems to me to be different if you didn't pocket a difference uh, than it would be if you did. It, 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 does your client actually receive monetary injury be, by being hauled into court? I mean, they have to pay me. That's part of it, yes. And, 
you know, I, I would also submit, you know, Justice Goff, the statute's working exactly as the legislature intended here. Dr. Gardner brought this because he doesn't want himself or members of the class, which by the way include his father, to have to suffer what he considers to be an injustice and unscrupulous practice by a contractor. So the legislature gave private citizens that right to do that, and that's the right he's exercising in this case. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. General Fisher. Thank you, Chief Justice, and may, may it please the court. Um, Justice Massa, the reason we're here on proposivist position is because of the, the statute itself, uh, which tells the court to construe it uh, liberally in favor of consumers, essentially. It's not just liberally in the abstract, but with a particular direction. Um, so I think that gives the court a direction on its method of interpretation that normally is lacking when we speak of textualism versus proposivism versus consequentialism. You're, the legislature is telling you what it wants you to do here, and I think that, that's, that, that heads in the direction we need to go. Uh, I think that, uh, Chief Justice, I think your, your instinct seems to be that uh, if the court gets to the, the susceptibility of class members to pay uh, reverse attorney fees here and decides that they are not susceptible to that, that it does not need to get to the prevailing party's construction. I think that is a correct instinct. I think that is exactly right. Uh, I think right now the, the focus needs to be on that class notice, which I think Mr. Jefferson is right, is directed at trying to chill participation in the class, eventually trying to drive settlement value down. I mean, that's, let's, let's, let's be real about this. Uh, do, we, do we look at the end of this case and think, well, the, the, the Hoosier contractors is likely to look up and pursue every individual class member for some uh, minute quantum of attorney's fees, well, that seems unrealistic. What does seem realistic, though, is that they will get, uh, with this kind of notice, a greater number of opt-outs and thereby drive down the settlement value of the case. And I think that that's very concerning, and that's one of the reasons that the state is interested in this case, Should trying you, to... Would you agree that that would be, we would be the first court in the country to say that a um, passive class member is considered a party with regard to that allocation? Of, um, and I, not on the front end, because statute, you know, that's laid out with regard to they have to pay their fair share of fees and costs um, if they're successful, but with regard to any penalties or fines or attorney's fees assessed against the uh, class representative. I, I, that's, as far as I know, yes, this would be the first case uh, to so hold. I don't know of any other case on that that, that suggests as much. And indeed, that's, that's the alarming thing about this case when we look at it is, oh my gosh, really? We're, we're going to tell the class members up front that they could be on the hook for some unknown amount of damages down the road for, for attorney's fees. Uh, that just seems out of step with the whole class action device, and not just in general, but in particular in relation to this statute, which incorporates the class action device as, a, as a, an important enforcement step. To augment, candidly, what the Attorney General is able to do. I mean, there, the Attorney General has limited staff, limited resources, uh, and capabilities to go after uh, those who, who deceive consumers. And it is important that the legislature's augmentation of that authority with private Attorney General capability uh, be respected, be advanced through the liberal construction of these statutes. Counsel, would it, would it even be possible to have opt-out classes if absent class members could be on the hook for attorney fees. It seems to raise a, perhaps a due process problem to me. If the fact yeah, yeah. That in your stack of mail you missed the one postcard that told you how to opt out and then because you missed that and threw it in the trash can you could be on the, the hook for attorney fees. I think that's a, it's a great point, Your Honor. I, I, it would be, it would be, we'd have to reimagine the, the class notice process to, to figure out if we're actually getting uh, awareness of 
potential class members to have them make informed uh, voluntary choices in this regard. Uh, so I think you, you, you do raise important questions about that, and, and we can avoid that totally by just saying this is limited to the actual parties in the case, no matter what prevailing party means. Does and the you, state have a position on the standing question, either under the statute or the Constitution? We, we haven't taken a position on that, in part because uh, in these types of cases, the, the ability to articulate an individualized injury is so fact-specific and so dependent, I think, upon uh, individual claimants and their attorneys. We, we don't want to in, in, inject ourselves into that debate where we're not as familiar with the facts. And so I think that there's a, a hesitancy on our part to, to wade into something that is so highly factual. Do you agree that the reliance is the injury? I mean, that you've got an opinion with regard to, listen, we have limited staff, we need to have consumers bring this. Yeah. Well, I, certainly, I think, uh, as far as the capabilities of, uh, of state enforcement goes, um, you know, we, we look at violations and we think, yes, this is, you know, if we see that the proper disclosures aren't there, we think we've got something that's actionable. Uh, and so whether that's sufficient, I think, constitutionally for uh, a, a, a uh, you know, the right to get into court, um, you know, that's something we don't want to get into because, again, the injury to the individual can be highly fact-specific, highly individualized, and we don't, I think, want to want to weigh into that where we don't have enough information. One other statutory interpretation question. The statute begins by saying a person relying on a deceptive act. Do you understand the word relying to be a term of art and it has to be detrimental reliance? I know you have no opinion about the facts of any particular case, just the meaning of that phrase in the statute. Does reliance mean detrimental reliance? Um, Your Honor, I appreciate the question. We haven't briefed that. I would not be comfortable taking a position on that today. Should. If what there's about no further the question. line of questioning with respect to being hauled into court, if there's some satisfaction that there's a deceptive act, a statutory deceptive act, we've been instructed to interpret this liberally, someone is then hauled into court, do we look at that through an ordinary lens? People have the right to come to court, or is that itself something that under this particular statutory scheme should be viewed as an injury? Well, look, I think I, I, I'm not sure that uh, quite how to answer that. Uh, and the, in all events, I think this statute is meant to be pro-consumer. It's meant to protect consumers. And I think in that regard, the court needs to view it through, you know, that, that kind of, 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 of lens. And I, I'm really not in a position to, to say anything more on the, the meaning of the statutory terms. All right, thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Riley, rebuttal. Uh, I want to start where, uh, with Justice Goff's last question, and if the court would indulge me, I want to quote from uh, reading the law, Scalia and Gardner, on what liberal construction means. And in it, it says, this is no way clarifies what any particular provision of the statute says, but instructs the court with regard to all the provisions how to make their interpret interpretive judgment with a thumb on the side of the scales that produces expansive application of the statute. Such a provision should be regarded as merely rejecting strict construction that distorts fair meaning, which the courts should not be engaging in anyway, since the interpretation is what the Constitution requires Instructing the courts to interpret fairly may make Congress, or in this case the legislature, a busybody, maybe ultra vires, but does not have any effect, page 245. And I think that gives us some understanding, at least from Garner and Scalia, what 
to liberally construe a statute means. I mean, courts should naturally, fairly construe any statute. And so an admonition from the legislature, I don't think changes anything with regard to how you are supposed to interpret the statute, which is fairly. And so that, I think, the whole argument with regard to liberally construed is just an attempt to back purposivism and consequentialism into the interpretation of the statute instead of looking at what the language of the statute actually is. Mr. Gardner talked about injuries, and he was asked about that by Justice Moulter. I think the record is clear below. The only injury that was put forward and admitted by counsel and argument is the fact that they signed this contract. And what about the record on appeal? I mean, do you, do you concede that those injuries were preserved, or do you think those are waived arguments on appeal? I think they're waived on appeal. I think it was an admission in court by the attorney, and therefore, that's the law of the case. I mean, that's not strict way of the law of the case doctrine, but I think that the court has the right to rely on when a lawyer in argument and in his papers makes a statement that the injury that we are here talking about is the fact that people signed a contract, may have gotten a roof, and are happy with their roof, but yet they're part of this class. With regard to the due process concerns you raised, Justice Moulter, in this situation, and I think in all situations with regard to contractors, the application of HICA, we have a defined class. Everyone who has signed a contract with Hoosier is a member of that class. They can be provided direct notice. This isn't a situation where we're talking about a million people who purchase bad gas from British Petroleum. We're talking about a defined subset of individuals, knowable, because we know them, their contracts have been produced, who can be given notice and explained what is going on here and what their obligations would be under. So In I addition to signing the contract, Mr. Gardner was subject to uh, liquidated damages, correct? Correct. Do you want me? Well, I mean, I mean I'm just looking at, so what was his detriment? What did he, he relied on the contract? If these were, in fact, deceptive um, statements, he, he signed the contract with the deceptive statements, which also sub objected him to liquidated damages. That's, that's correct, but that, has, that is a contractual term that has nothing to do with the so-called HICA violations and would be subject to a separate litigation under whether the liquidated damages were a penalty or not. What we are here is considering whether the, the fact of signing this contract alone without damage. Why wouldn't that be detrimental reliance? It, liquidated damages, he, he signed a contract with the statements in it to his detriment, and now he's being sued, and he has exposure of liquidated damage, 20 percent liquidated damages. Uh, first of all, Chief Justice, I would say that was not raised below. I mean, the damages that have been articulated here by Mr. Gardner are the fact that he signed it, not the liquidated damages. He didn't argue that was part of HICA. He argued that separately, both in the trial court and in the Court of Appeals. Also, whether the contract was valid or not. I think that is a dis that's a distinction between whether HICA violation and a contract action. So I don't think they, I think they're mutually exclusive. I'm going to go back to the question that Justice Goff asked me about whether this would distort or disrupt the Deceptive Consumer Sales Act, and I see I'm out of time. But Justice Goff, I don't believe it does.
Well, Council, we appreciate your argument today. The briefing, um, we will be discussing the issue and um, issuing an opinion. Thank you very much. Yeah, good job.